Chapter Twenty Nine of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Casey E. Kennard. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter Twenty Nine An Ill Fated Marriage. Continued. If anything could have restored happiness to Milan of Servia and his princess Natalie, it should surely have been the birth of the baby prince, Alexander, whom both equally adored and equally spoiled. But instead of linking his parents in a new bond of affection, Sasha was from his cradle the innocent cause of widening the breach that severed them. For a time, fortunately, Milan had little opportunity of continuing the feud of recrimination with his high-spirited and hot-tempered spouse. More serious matters claimed him. Servia was plunged into war with Turkey, and his days were spent in camp and on the battlefield, until the intervention of Russia put an end to the long and hopeless struggle, and Milan found himself one February day, in 1882, thanks to the Berlin Conference, hailed the first king of his country, under the title of Milan I. Then followed a disastrous war with Bulgaria, into which the headstrong king rushed in spite of Natalie's warning. Draw back, Milan, and have no share in what will prove a bloody drama. You have no chance of conquering, for Alexander is made of the stuff of the Hohenzollerns. And indeed the struggle was doomed to failure from the first, for Milan was no man to lead an army to victory. Read his method of conducting a campaign, as described by one of his aides-de-camp. Our troops continue to retreat. I never imagined a campaign could be so jolly. We do nothing but dance and sing and fiddle. Yesterday the king had some guests and the champagne literally flowed. We had the Belgrade singers, who used to delight us in the theatre café. They sang and danced delightfully. The last two days we have had plenty of fun, and yesterday a lot of jolly girls came to enliven us. Such was Milan's method of conducting a great war, on which the very existence of his kingdom hung. Wine and women and song were more to his taste than forced marches, strategy, and hard-fought battles. But once again foreign intervention came to his rescue, and his armies were saved from annihilation. When his sword was finally sheathed, if not with honor, he returned to Belgrade to resume his gambling, his dallyings with fair women, and his daily quarrels with his queen, whose bitterness absence had done nothing to assuage. So far from Natalie's spirit being crushed, it was higher and prouder than ever. She would die before she would yield, but she was in no mood to die, this autocratic, fiery-tempered, strong-willed daughter of Russia. She gave literally a striking proof of the spirit that was in her at the Easter reception of 1886, when the wife of a Greek diplomat a beautiful woman, to whom her husband had been more than kind, presented herself smilingly to receive the salute courteous from Her Majesty. With a look of scorn, Natalie coolly surveyed her rival from head to foot, 
and then, in the presence of the court, gave her a resounding slap on the cheek. But the Grecian lady was only one of many fair women who basked successively or together in Milan's favor. A much more formidable rival was Artemisia Christish, a woman as designing as she was lovely, who was quick to envelop the weak king in the toils of her witchery. Not content with his smiles and favors, she aspired to take Natalie's place as Queen of Servia, and, it is said, had extorted from him a promise that he would make her his queen as soon as his existing marriage tie could be dissolved. And to this infamous compact Artemisia's husband, a man as crafty and unscrupulous as herself, consented, in return for his promotion to certain high and profitable offices in the state. In vain did the emperor and the crown prince of Austria, with many another high-placed friend, plead with Milan not to commit such a folly. He was driven to distraction between such powerful appeals and the allurement of the siren who had him so effectually under her spell, until in his despair he entertained serious thoughts of suicide as escape from his dilemma. Meanwhile, we are told, a perfect hell raged in the castle. Each day brought its scandalous scene between his outraged queen and himself. His unpopularity with his subjects became so acute that he was hissed whenever he made his appearance in the streets of his capital, and Artemisia was obliged to have police protection to shield her from the vengeance of the mob. As for Natalie, this crowning injury decided her to bear her purgatory no longer. She would force her husband to abdicate and secure her own appointment as regent for her son or, failing that, she would leave her husband and seek an asylum out of Servia, and with the object of still further embittering his subjects against the king, she made the full story of her injuries public, and enlisted the sympathy not only of Milan's most powerful ministers, but of the entire country. "'The castle is in utter confusion,' wrote an officer of the Belgrade garrison in October 1886. The king looks ill, and as if he never slept, poor fellow. He flies for refuge to us in the guard-house, and plays cards with the officers. Card-playing is his worst enemy. He loves it passionately, and plays excitedly and for high points, and he always loses. Matters were now hastening to a crisis. Hopelessly in debt, scorned by his subjects and hated by his wife, Milan's plight was pitiful. The scenes between the king and the queen were becoming more violent and disgraceful every day. There was no peace anywhere, nor did anyone belonging to the court enjoy a moment of tranquillity. So intolerable had life become that early in 1887 Milan decided to dissolve his marriage, and it was only at the pleading of the Austrian emperor that he consented to abandon this design on condition that his wife left Servia. And thus it was that one day in April Queen Natalie left Belgrade, accompanied by her son Sasha, ostensibly that he might continue his education in Germany. But although husband and wife were thus at last separated, Milan's resolve to divorce her remained firm. "'I have to inform you,' 
he wrote shortly after her departure, that I have this day sent in my application to our holy national church for permission to dissolve our marriage, and that nothing might be lacking to Natalie's suffering and humiliation, he sent General Protish to Wiesbaden with the peremptory demand that his son, Sasha, should return to Servia. In vain did Natalie protest against both indignities. Milan might divorce her, but at least he should not rob her of her son, the only solace left to her in life. And when General Protish, seeing that milder measures were futile, gave orders for the prince to be removed by force, the distracted mother flung one protecting arm round her boy, and pointing a loaded pistol with the other, threatened to shoot dead the man who dared approach her. Opposition, however, was futile. The following evening the boy prince was in his father's arms, and the weeping mother was left disconsolate. Thus robbed of her darling Sasha, it was not long before the second blow fell. The divorce proceedings were rushed through the synod. A deaf ear was turned to Natalie's petition to be allowed at least to defend herself in person, and on the 12th October, 1883, the marriage between King Milan I and Natalie, born Ketchko, was formally dissolved. Well might this most unhappy of queens write, The position is embittered by my conscience assuring me that I have neglected no duty, and that there is not a single action of my life which could be cited against me as a grave offence, or could put me to shame or it brought before the whole world. My fate draws tears from the very stones, but I do not ask for pity. I demand justice. If anything could have increased Milan's unpopularity, it was this brutal treatment of his queen. The very men who at his coronation had taken off their cloaks that he might walk on them, and the women who had kissed his garments, now hissed him in the streets of his capital. In his own court he had no friend except the infamous Christish, the general hatred even took the form of repeated attempts on his life. If he would save it, he realized he must abandon his crown, and one March morning in 1889, after informing his ministers of his intention to abdicate, he woke his twelve-year-old son with the greeting, "'Good morning, Your Majesty.' Milan was no longer King of Servia. His son, Alexander, reigned in his stead." Probably no king ever laid down his crown more willingly. He had put aside forever his royal trappings, with all their unhappy memories and their present discomforts and danger. But in distant Paris he knew a life of new pleasure awaited him, remote from the wranglings of courts and the assassin's knife. And within a week of greeting his successor as king, he was gaily riding in the bois, attending the theatres, supping hilariously with ladies of the ballet, or dining with his friends at Varese, where his somewhat rough manner and coarse jokes, the legacy of his swineherd ancestry, caused him sometimes to be mistaken for a parvenu, until a waiter would correct the impression by a whispered, "'That gentleman with the dark moustache is Milan, ex-king of Servia.'" While her husband was thus drinking the cup of Paris pleasure, his wife was still doomed to exile from her kingdom and her son, with permission only to pay two brief visits each year. 
but natalie who had so longed to fight a king was not the woman to be daunted by mere regents she would return to belgrade and at least make her home where she could catch an occasional glimpse of her boy and to belgrade she went to make her entry over flower-strewn streets and through a tornado of cheers and shouts of zivella rufa it was a truly royal welcome to the great warm heart of the servian people but no official of the court was there to greet her coming and as she drove past the castle which held all she counted dear in life not even the flutter of a handkerchief marked the passing of servia's former queen had she but played her cards now with the least discretion she might have been allowed to remain in belgrade in peace but natalie seems fated to have been the harbinger of storm for a time it is true she was content to lie perdue entertaining her friends at her house in prince michael street driving through the streets of her capital behind her pair of white ponies or walking with her pet goat for companion greeted everywhere and with respect and affection but her restless vengeful spirit still burning from the indignity she had suffered would not allow her to remain long in the background she threw herself into political agitation and thus brought herself into open conflict with the regents she inaugurated a campaign of abuse against her husband whom she still pursued with a relentless hatred and generally made herself so objectionable to the authorities that the scoop Shatina was at last compelled to order her banishment when the deputies presented themselves before her with the decree of expulsion she laughed in their very faces declaring that she would only submit to force i refuse to go she said defiantly unless i am expelled by the hands of the police a few hours later she was forcibly removed from her weeping and protesting ladies hurried into a carriage and driven off with a strong escort of soldiers on her journey to exile but the good people of belgrade who had got wind of the proposed abduction were by no means disposed to look on while their beloved queen was thus brutally taken from them when the cortege reached the cathedral square it was stopped by a formidable and menacing mob the escort furiously assailed with sticks and showers of stones was beaten off the horses were taken from the carriage and the queen was drawn back in triumph by scores of willing hands to her residence natalie's victory however was short-lived at midnight when her stalwart champions were sleeping in their beds the police crawling over the roofs of the houses in prince michael street and descending into the queen's courtyard found it a very simple matter to complete their dastardly work the queen was again bundled unceremoniously into a carriage and before belgrade was well awake she was far on her way to her new exile in hungary a few days later a formal decree of banishment was pronounced against her forbidding her under any pretext whatever to enter servia again without the regent's permission only once more did natalie and milan set eyes on each other when the ex-king presented himself at biarritz to bring her news of their son's projected coup d'etat by which he designed to depose the regents and to take the reins of government into his own hands 
Taken by surprise, the queen received Milan, but when she saw him standing before her, an aged, broken man, her composure gave way. She could not speak. She trembled like a leaf. With Alexander's dramatic ascension to his full kingship, a new, if brief, era of happiness opened to Natalie. The regents were no longer able to exclude her from Servia, and by her son's invitation she returned to Belgrade to resume her old position of queen. Still beautiful, in spite of all her suffering, she played for a time the role of queen mother to perfection, holding her courts, presiding at balls and soirees, taking a prominent part in affairs of state, and gradually acquiring more power than her easy-going son himself enjoyed. At last, after long years of unrest and unhappiness, she seemed assured of peaceful years, secure in the affection of her son and her people, and far removed from the husband who had brought so much misery into her life. But Natalie was fated never to be happy long, and once more her evil destiny was to snatch the cup from her lips, assuming this time the form of Draga Mashin, one of her own ladies-in-waiting, under the spell of whose black eyes and voluptuous charms her son quickly fell, after that first dramatic incident at Biarritz, when she plunged into the sea to his rescue and saved him from drowning. Many months earlier a clairvoyante at Paris had told Natalie, "'Your Majesty is cherishing in your bosom a poisonous snake, which one day will give you a mortal wound.' She had smiled incredulously at the warning, but she was soon to learn what truth it held. Certainly Draga Mashin was the last person she would have suspected of being a source of danger, a woman many years older than her son, the penniless widow of a drunken engineer, a woman, moreover, of whose life before Natalie had taken pity on her poverty many strange stories were told how, for instance, she had often been seen in low resorts, with the arm of a forester or a tradesman round her, singing the old Servian songs. But she had not taken into account Draga's sensuous beauty, before which her son was powerless. Each meeting left him more and more involved in her toils, until, to the consternation of Servia and the horror of his mother, he announced his intention of making her his queen. Even Milan, degraded as he was, was horror-struck when the news came to him in Paris. And this, he exclaimed, is the act of Sasha, my own son. He is a monster, a thing of evil in the eyes of all men. The Mashin will be the queen of Servia. What a reproach! What an evil! A creature like her! A sordid creature! Could he have not put aside his love for this low-born woman? But I could never make the fool understand that a king has duties. He has something else to think of but love-making. When taking leave of the friend who had brought him this evil news, Milan said, I shall never see Servia again. My experience has been a bitter one. Everywhere treachery and deceit. And now my own son. That has broken my heart. A few months later, worn out by his excesses, prematurely old and broken-hearted, the man who had prostituted life's best gifts drew his last breath at Vienna at the age of forty-six. 
as for natalie this crowning calamity of her son's disgrace did more than all her past sufferings to crush her proud spirit but fate had not yet dealt the last and most cruel blow of all that fell on that fatal june day of nineteen o two when her beloved sasha's mutilated body was flung by his assassins out of his palace window to be greeted with shouts of derisive laughter and cries of long live king peter from the dense crowds who had come to gloat over this last scene in the tragedy of the house of the aubrenvois end of chapter twenty nine recording by casey e canard End of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall